Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome again to In Town Community Church. My name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we get to finish up a series that we have been in for our Easter season that we've been calling Flawed Followers. We're talking about what it means that we are followers of Jesus, but we are also messed up. We're not perfect. Uh, We, despite our best efforts, uh, haven't found the secret to never screwing up here on earth. And um, yet we also deal with the reality that the world sees us. And sometimes we, we're sad about that fact. They're sad about that fact, that it kind of shines on us in a weird way. You might be one of those people who, you know, you're here, you've been invited, or you've been going to church for a long time, but there is something about the fact that Christ's supposed followers keep not looking like Christ that uh, just kind of throws a little bit of a, a poison into the mix, makes it feel strange, like we don't actually believe what we're talking about. That makes me sad, and it's often very true. Now, but the, the, the interesting thing about that, though, is that nonetheless, um, when we look back in the Bible, it's not like we've somehow lost something. Jesus followers were flawed followers. Jesus followers were the type of people that if we look at them, we ask, oh, really? And so that's what we've kind of been exploring over the last few weeks. Last week, as many of you were here, a lot of you were here. It was super exciting. Uh, We got to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Um, We were talking about how Jesus, as we sang about this morning, has overcome death. And this incredible thing that, yes, we're flawed, but Jesus has overcome those flaws. Jesus has overcome our brokenness, and there is nothing in us that his death and his resurrection cannot redeem. So you would imagine disciples, being one of Jesus' disciples. We say there are 12 of them, and those are kind of the official 12 disciples who followed most closely with Jesus Some traditions call those apostles. Some translations do. But there were broader people, right, as well, who followed Jesus that we also kind of consider his disciples. When I use that language this morning, I'm kind of meaning both of those groups. As we learned last week, Jesus, when he came back to life, he revealed himself. Yes, to some of his disciples, big D, 12, but also to a number of other people, including Um, a group of wonderful women for whom were really the first to really believe that it was actually Jesus. So you could imagine if you thought God had shown up on earth and then you were so crushed that God died and then God came back, how would you feel? What would you do I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, if, if, what do I think I would do? Probably what I would actually do is probably a little bit more akin to what happened, but what would I think would happen? We're going to mobilize. We want a campaign. We need a couple of committees. I need campaign managers. We are going to get the word out. It is going to be awesome. What did the disciples actually do? They went fishing. <laughs> they went fishing. Now, I find fishing incredibly boring, 
Some of you might not, and I'm sorry. Um, strangely, I loved going fishing as a child, but it was because I really loved my grandfather, and spending six uninterrupted hours with my grandfather was worth the six hours of colossal boredom and actually doing what the activity was because I was with him. Some of you can relate to this, even parents, if it means doing things like playing video games with your children or something like that. I get it. But there is this sense that they were doing something that you would not expect them to be doing with their lives, following a literal universe-shattering event. And I'm going to ask Sam to come up, and he's going to tell us a little bit more from God's Word what happened next. The scripture reading this morning is from John 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, you did literally everything with a group of people who decided to go fishing, who were scared and broken and flawed. And we sit here 2,000 years later, and we are much the same. Lord, inspire us, move us, change us, transform us by your resurrection power in our actual lives, even this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. So again, universe-shattering event, deciding to respond to that by going fishing. What do we make of this? What do we do with this? It's not incredibly inspiring to read about the people who, again, should have been most excited about Jesus deciding to go fishing in response to his resurrection. I don't know about you, but in my heart, again, maybe I've already shown that just in kind of how I keep kind of derogatorily talking about this, I think I would do different. There's a part of me that kind of is the, the mobilizer, the worker. And actually, in many respects, it's kind of a joke because when you look at Scripture, Peter was that person. Peter is the person when Jesus asks, who do people say I am? Who immediately is like, pick me, coach, pick me, pick me. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is the one who, when Jesus says, someone will betray me, 
when, when, Peter, when Jesus says that, that, that Peter immediately says, not me. Everyone else might betray you, but I promise you I won't. Peter's the one who, even though there is an entire army coming at Jesus, and even though he's Jesus, Peter, the first guy who comes to Jesus, pulls out a sword and goes for the ear as if somehow that is going to stop the Roman legionaries coming at them. That's Peter. I say that because I have a confession to make. And the confession, I'll tell you interestingly, plays into a little bit of the writing of this sermon. The confession's this, I really didn't want to preach this week. Sorry. Real people. Let me back that up. Not that I didn't want to preach this week, and not that I didn't want to preach to you guys this week. I didn't want to preach this this week. So a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, rather, um, Jimmy Egan, our senior pastor, is beginning to talk about the sabbatical. And we are starting to get uh, kind of the, the planning and the pieces together for that sabbatical. Obviously, one part of that is preaching. Um, and we worked it out. I was going to take some. David Fisk was going to take some. We were going to work out any holes or whatnot. And then we start working about what we're going to preach on. And I start getting really, really excited about a series that we're actually going to start next week on the church. Because you work like a lot more in advance on series. They're really, really fun. It's weird. Preaching a long time is actually easier in certain ways than preaching like a one-off. And so we were, we, we were excited. I was excited. I started to get hyped up about what it could look like. I, I hope that uh, God leads us next week in it. But then I realized, wait, I have a week before that. And then last week, we have this incredible worship service. The choir is amazing. The place is packed. Jimmy literally leaves it all on the proverbial field before he goes to his sabbatical. It's wonderful. We're talking about the resurrection. And somewhere towards like three quarters in, like I've literally sat, I sat here, stood here, announced to you all that this was going to take place, that we did have one more week of the Flawed Follower series before we got on to the new series or whatnot. But it just dawns on me about three quarters into Jimmy's sermon, oh, wait, that's me. Not only, oh, wait, is that me, I like literally check back at the preaching schedule in the middle of the service. What am I preaching on again? Oh. Disciples fishing. What dawned on me this week was that the same emotions I was feeling about the passage is actually what the Bible does. You and I would expect the gospel writers to write about the excitement of the disciples after the resurrection. But what their actual experience was, was much more unknown. We find in some of the earlier instances of Jesus appearing to them after the resurrection, we find confusion, we find doubt, we find fear, we find uncertainty. 
And here now we find what isn't necessarily apathy, but it is the like unknown beyond the unknown. When you, you know, at first you don't know what's going on and so you're kind of frozen, but then you really don't know what's going on and so you just kind of go about your day. You know, if someone's supposed to show up for a meeting at your house, you sit on the couch, you adjust the pillows, you make sure you don't have the time wrong, you check the window every five seconds. But if they're more than like a certain amount of time late, and that might depend on, that, that amount might depend on your personality, but, but eventually they're really, really late, and you stop expecting them to come, and you start just doing the dishes, or you start doing your next thing. That's what the disciples here have started to do. In reflecting on my own kind of sad roller coaster moment of this and the, reala- the realization of, oh, the momentum is gone, right? That I'm preaching on this passage and this thing. I recognized in my own soul something that I think we all might experience at various times in our Christian life. I think the narrative of our culture has kind of birthed and nurtured two myths into our psyche, and we bring these myths to the text, and we bring these myths to our Christian life as a whole. And they're what I want to talk about this morning, and I want to use what actually happens in the midst of this fishing trip um, to do so. The first of these I want to call the myth of the cinematic moment. The myth of the cinematic moment. And it's this, a belief that If I really think about how bad I am, if I really think about how big my sin is, if I really think about what it would take to change me, then the way in which God has to do that is going to have to be big as well. My sanctification, my transformation is going to have to happen in a big encounter with Jesus. I understand this myth. Um, As you know, I'm in youth ministry. Um, I grew up in the 90s, which was like the high watermark for youth ministry. Some of you were there as well. And we developed a colloquialism we called the mountaintop experience. Now, mountaintop experiences, it's biblical because Moses did it and Elijah did it and Jesus did it once. They actually did go up on mountains and see Jesus or see God and really glory, uh, glorious moments. But it was sort of this colloquialism for the idea that to really experience God, to really experience presence, to really experience um, change in your life, you had to get out of the normalcy of everyday living. You had to go do something really, really cool and different. And then in that moment of 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 emotional time and the music swelling and the lights are big, then the Holy Spirit gets you. Now, some of us have a story where that, God used that and it played a role, and please don't don't hear me talking down against those. It's still a justification for summer camp that, yes, sometimes getting out of your regular life is helpful in seeing God in a new way. But there was always a danger. And the danger... I remember my youth pastor talking to me about it. I still talk to our students about it today. Is that the mountain hop is not your real life. And getting back to your real life 
means how do we figure out how to incorporate what God has done in your life into this actual existence. I think one of our issues that our culture has um, kind of birthed in us is that big things, the resurrection of Jesus, transformation of my really, really sick heart, must happen in these big climactic moments. And only then do I figure out how to orient it to my regular life. But this is problematic because it already says that Jesus, what he wants to do in your life, the work of the Holy Spirit, spiritual stuff, happens in a separate box to everyday life. It assumes there must be a jump. Furthermore, it really complicates things for those of us who are no longer in a place like youth ministry because we don't have summer camp that we go to each and every year. We don't have any of those things necessarily built in. So we sometimes start thinking about, you know, you ask questions like, do you feel close to God? Well, maybe, maybe not. Do you uh, have any times, any memories of feeling, you know, deeply uh, passionate about your faith? Well, there was that one time in college 30 years ago. I mean, we, 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 we don't have those handholds anymore. Again, because our culture has in some ways made us uh, grab for them. The reason this passage makes me think about that is because Peter was very broken. He was very flawed. He literally became the example of denying Jesus. And he didn't just kind of fall or trip into that denial. He swore it wasn't going to happen. Jesus literally prophesies to him that it will, and then it does. And so the disciples, because they don't know what else to do, they fall back on what they're used to, and they go fishing. They fish for a while. They don't really catch much, and suddenly this guy shows up, a stranger in this passage in John 21. He calls out to them and asks them if they've found fish or not. They don't. He tells them how to fish differently, and suddenly a miracle happens. They catch a ton of fish. Now this starts setting light bulbs off on the mountaintop experience meter. This is exactly how Peter was called to Jesus, if you remember. He is in a boat. There is a crowd. The disciples aren't catching any fish. Jesus is teaching out of the boat. He then says, hey, fish in a different way. They do, and the miraculous catch that follows moves Peter to repentance. Well, you start to see the miracle happen again here. And in my brain, a nice, like, Hans Zimmer uh, soundtrack starts to play, and you start feeling, oh, yeah, this is where Peter is going to be brought back to Jesus. The climactic, cinematic moment is about to happen. Then Peter recognizes Jesus, along with a couple of the other disciples. He jumps into the water, paddles to Jesus, 
you, you expect this massive embrace and again the cinematic moment to happen? No. They start having lunch. Then Jesus pulls Peter aside for a conversation. And even in that conversation, at least what we have recorded, is not this deep, heart-to-heart, wondrous thing. It's a couple of simple questions. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? I wonder how often Peter reflected on that conversation in the decades after. Jesus didn't give Peter a sermon, nor a gigantic theological treatise. He just, really in the same rhythm of Peter denying him, moves him to tears, asking him if he loves him. It's not cinematic. No one else was there. Even the miraculous fish catch, there are only seven people there. But it does change Peter. And it doesn't change him in some miraculous way. He does not develop a halo. He is still Peter. He will still screw up. He will screw up in Acts. He will screw up in Galatians. He will spend his whole life being a flawed follower. What you need to know is this. Seeking cinematic moments to connect with God, it is not wrong for us to have them. It is not wrong for us to have special services like we did last week. It is not wrong for you to go on a spiritual retreat. It is not wrong for you to be a part of a special Bible study. It is not wrong for us to send our students away. It is not wrong to have any of those things. And yet, when we develop a reliance upon those type of experiences, an expectation that God has to show up in a certain way, and if God doesn't show up in a certain way, He did not show up at all, it's a recipe for disappointment. It's a recipe for burnout. If I only connect with Jesus in a certain way at a certain time, I will not connect with him in the regularity of life. To be honest, if I had more time, I would get on a soapbox and we could talk about why, as much as I love youth ministry, it's one of the problems sometimes. We raise our kids to think about church a certain way, and then they come to church a different way. They find a church in college or whatnot, and it's like, wow, it's boring. How do I deal with that? That's for another time. Anyway, what I want you to know is that you are a flawed follower of Jesus. Jesus wants to change you. Jesus wants to transform you. And while, yes, he might use big moments in your life, he is much more likely to use everyday quiet circumstances that because he is God, nonetheless pierce your heart. He is actually much more likely to use conversations over breakfast. 
he is much more likely to use the quiet moment after you have just screamed at your child and you see their look of fear and instead of being like, yeah, I put the fear of God in you, you're actually like, oh God, what have I done? He is much more likely to use the moment of depression and sadness where you sit there at 9.30 in the morning and because you retired last year and you wouldn't have been at work by this point and now you're like, what do I do? He's much more likely to use that to make you more like him than he is to only use the big stuff and the lights. The myth of the cinematic moment is that God can only change you if we do big stuff. The actuality is that what he wants you to do is to do what the disciple originally did, not Peter here in this passage. When while they were fishing, the disciple who Jesus loved, John, who never names himself, says, it is the Lord. John recognizes in an everyday moment that Jesus is present. The muscle that you and I need to work on in our spiritual lives is not a gigantic theological mountain, and it is not a lost-in-worship experience. The muscle you and I need to work on being able to recognize is the, there is the Lord sitting in my everyday life. There is the Lord at work sitting next to my boss, whom I hate, asking me, challenging me, how can I love this person? There is the Lord sitting next to my other children when I sit there and go, I know God says I'm not supposed to love any of my kids more than the other, but I'm really struggling with that one. There's the Lord. That's what God calls us to. I know we could preach a whole sermon on that about how we do that. I think the reality is, is actually when you think about it, more and more and more of this book is regular life and regular time than we like to admit. For those of you who actually know about the church calendar, uh, which some traditions have used, and we've talked about certain aspects of it, like Advent or Epiphany before, the largest chunk of time by half is called ordinary time. That is the moment. How do we develop seeing Jesus in ordinary time? At the same time, I think hearing that sermon, that side of things in this passage, introduces a swing of the pendulum to the other direction. It's a second myth, and it's this myth, a myth of missing out. A myth of missing out. Because it can feel like, yeah, Steve, I get it. God's about ordinary life, and that's good, and that's amazing, because that means I, I don't, you know, I, I, can, I can be a Christian, and I can serve him. And, but I think many of us still have this moment where 
God, that, that's awesome, but man, I, I wanted to do something big for you. And maybe I just missed it because I was too flawed. It's like, great, Steve, thanks so much for reminding me that I can still be a Christian in my regular life. But if I had only done X instead of Y back when I was in college, or if I only not screwed up in this way over here, or made this failure back there, yeah, God loves me and has forgiven me, but I could have been something. I could have done something for him. First of all, our guests this week would be the first to tell you, you live very real, ordinary, flawed lives. Pastors, we say the same thing. There is no do big things for God or not that doesn't involve a lot of brokenness and a lot of regular stuff. But I think about Peter again, and I think about Peter even as Jesus started initiating that conversation. Because I think about the cinematic moment, oh yeah, Peter's going to get redeemed here. But I wonder if Peter's sitting here like, well, this is the fourth time Jesus has shown up and the hammer has not dropped yet. Peter knows Jesus knows. Jesus predicted it, and it happened. What if Peter's sitting there going, yeah, I love you like crazy, even as these questions are being asked, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? But I can imagine Peter thinking every single time Jesus asks, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter's expectation is Jesus saying, then why did you deny me? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like, I, I can imagine that coming. And it doesn't. It never does. Jesus actually gives up, does not take what would have been a right to pronounce real judgment to question, to be sad, for himself to grieve openly to Peter and instead loves him. And not just loves him, continues to consider him to be one of the heads of the church who will eventually be one of the most courageous people who will eventually give his life for the gospel. What you need to know is this. If Jesus shows up in normal, regular, ordinary moments, and if you can do nothing to stop Jesus from using you, if you are never too flawed, if his resurrection power is so powerful, then if we put these two things together, it means that there is never some moment in your life that if you had only been better then, then God can use you. God can use you no matter what age, no matter what time, no matter what situation, and he makes even what is actually the big calls, the big draws to himself, often in very ordinary moments. I cannot tell you the moment I decided to become a pastor. I can tell you many, many times that I decided not to, <laughs> that I gave God an out, <laughs> that I said, oh, maybe I'll try this instead, and then a door got slammed in my face, and I came back. 
you are not a second-rate believer. Nothing you have done, your flawedness, did not put you in a secondary category that says, yeah, Jesus loves you and grace is real, but you're no longer useful. You're no longer usable. We send you out to regular person pasture where you sit in a pew and you sing a song and you worship Jesus and you die and you go to heaven. No. God can and does and is and will use you in a thousand different ways to further his kingdom. Parent, you have no idea how much you are showing your kid Jesus. Worker, you have no idea how much in your job you are tilling the soil of Eden. And we will not until that glorious day when finally, Scripture says, our eyes are opened and we actually see God's plan. We have no idea. I mean, think about, you know, we, we know almost nothing about Zebedee, James and John's dad. We know a little bit about his mom because their mom comes and actually is one of these women who follows Jesus. We know almost nothing about dad. We don't know whether dad's dead and that's why they've inherited this or not. We don't know. We know this. James and John, for some reason, when Jesus said, let's go, they went. And further, we know nothing about Zebedee's dad. And we know nothing about his dad. I actually love when um, missionaries do sometimes come back here to in-town. It's one of the things that attracted me to this church in the first place, to hear stories about, hey, I started here 25 years ago. I love hearing those from you guys. I mean, we've been through a lot as a church. You want to talk about flawed followers, we could just do a whole series on flawed church, and we could have the history of, of in-town as one of those. And I'm not hating on you guys there. I'm one of us here. I'm part of our flawed history. But also, wow, what has God done here among us? Not because of the massive campaign we did here. Not because of the incredible revival that happened there. But because you kept showing up because you got mad at this person and then they repented to you and because of that the gospel was shown and God did amazing things. You and I are not second-rate believers. We have not missed our call. We are not failing because we are not somehow in you know, this mission field or doing this thing or at this spot in our Christian faith. If you are Peter this morning, if you have denied Jesus in a thousand different ways, you are actually in great company. If you are struggling to see God in your every day, you are in great company. Now, the downside of those myths is that I can't just give you a silver bullet here. Part of me just wants to say, keep coming. Keep reading, keep pushing. But the grace of God each and every week reminds us 
He comes through. And if this week that you've forgotten that, great, turn to your neighbor. We can encourage each other. And if this week all of us have forgotten, that's why he gives us this. Because again, we have a memory. The reason we have communion, I believe, is because I know how much of a failure I am at connecting with Jesus, so much so that I need him to give me something I just got to do. Because I'm going to forget, because I walk into this building and I'm sad or depressed or distracted. Because worship doesn't always work, quote unquote, from a me perspective about my heart. It works a lot because God loves listening even to my absolutely horrible singing and even to my absolutely horrible heart. He's God. It's amazing. He hears my prayers because of the Holy Spirit and because of the work of Jesus. But I love the fact that I get this. And you, this morning, this is not a hoop to jump through to come meet Jesus. It is not a barrier that says, maybe if I'm good enough, I can take this. It is Jesus this morning calling you and saying, because of what I have done in your heart, I get an opportunity to remind you again how awesome I am and how much you love me and how much I love you. That is what's happening here.